The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Christopher House on the destruction of Ukrainian churches, Richard Florida on how COVID has changed London for the better, and Olivia Potts on her love of the crisp sandwich. First up, Christopher House. Unholy war. The destruction of Ukraine's churches. One small deadly incident in the Ukrainian war proved memorable because it involved the ordinary things of life. A mother and two children trying to leave the town of Erpin on foot on the 6th of March died from Russian shelling. Their suitcases fell beside them and miserably a pet dog carrier. They lay on an ordinary road that could be in Surrey on the steps of a memorial to Soviet dead from the Second World War. That spot is opposite a little row of bells under a tiled roof in the grounds of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of St George. A neat hoarding was visible in 2015 on the building next to the modest unfinished church showing what it would look like when the five domes were roofed and gilded. Footage of the explosion that killed the family shows the completed domes gleaming in the sunshine, the building behind the hoarding still intact and the conifers in its garden not yet turned into spent matches. The windows of St George's were soon smashed and its parish centre was destroyed. The bombardment of the town continued for days. The destruction of churches in Ukraine matters. Russia's disgusting strategy of pounding cities with artillery is intended to make inhabitants' lives unbearable, and part of that life is the familiar surroundings of streets and old places of worship. In the first month of the war, the Ukrainian Ministry of Culture listed 59 religious sites badly damaged, most of them Orthodox churches, but some evangelical churches and synagogues too. At Mariupol, for example, the church of the Archangel Michael overlooking the Sea of Azov was reported to be severely damaged. And here we come to a difficulty. Mariupol has been devastated, but it has been hard to get news or pictures out. One English charity worker with good contacts in Ukraine told me, having presented himself as the defender of Christians as part of his public persona in Russia, it would not be good PR for Putin if pictures of a church destroyed by Russian missiles went global but two journalists working for the Associated Press stayed on in besieged Mariupol 
and a photograph by one of them, Evgeny Maloletka, has been widely seen. It shows the shell of a traditional Orthodox church amid the ruin of modern buildings. A Ukrainian soldier takes a picture of it with his mobile. Its dome is reduced to a broken birdcage of ribs. Icons of its holy saints stand each side of its blasted doors. Mariupol was founded by Greek-speaking people deported from Crimea in 1779. Its name derived from Mary, the Theotokos, the God-bearer, whose image is the Hodogetria, the one who points out the way. The icon came with the uprooted people, but as in most parts of Ukraine, under Soviet rule before the Second World War, Stalin's atheist five-year plan of 1932 to 1937 had its effect. Virtually no church was left open in Mariupol by 1940. The Mariupol theatre, where 300 are estimated to have died on 16th of March in a Russian strike, was built in a traditional style in 1960 where the Church of St Mary Magdalene had stood before it was deliberately demolished in the 1930s. Remains of the church, excavated in 2018, were on show at the theatre. From the first days of this year's war, the ancient churches of Ukraine knew what to fear. Shelling on the 2nd of March damaged the Orthodox Cathedral of the Dormition in the centre of Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city. Television viewers saw shattered windows and holy icons blown from their stands and smashed on the ground. It was the day after missiles devastated Freedom Square in the city, blasting through public buildings, the Opera House and the Concert Hall there. It was a taste of worse to come. Freedom Square had been a culturally soft European spot in the city centre, with a park and a zoo, coffee shops, a McDonald's and an Irish pub. Sandbags now form a tall jacket swaddling the statue of Taras Shevchenko, the national poet. On the other side of Shevchenko Park rises the Dormition Cathedral's 300-foot seven-stage tower of pale stone in the style of Wren, with Corinthian columns and Phoenician windows, but topped by a gilt onion dome. Inside, an 18th-century gilded iconostasis has been carved in limestone to the designs of Francesco Rastrelli, who was then busy rebuilding the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. Yet, to the revolutionaries of 1917, the cathedral had been thought fit only to house a radio transmitter in its bell tower. Its altar was put in the City Museum of Art and was destroyed by fire during the Second World War. The Soviets demolished its five domes and turned it into a warehouse. 
but with the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was restored and put into the care of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. It had been regularly used as a venue for concerts. Kharkiv has endured constant bombardment day and night. Some people set up home in carriages at metro stations. It became impossible for international correspondents to report regularly from the city. Even in Lviv, in western Ukraine, part of Poland before the Second World War, for weeks treated as a safe city, chipboard and tin sheeting soon went up over the windows of the Cathedral of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which follows the Latin rite. Its medieval Gothic structure was transformed in the 18th century with Baroque golden swags and flowers painted on columns between soaring marble altarpieces. As scaffolders erected protection for its wall paintings, Lilia Onishchenko, the head of the City Council Heritage Protection Office, told the Guardian, if we lose our culture, we lose our identity. With its Renaissance, Baroque and neoclassical buildings, Lviv, which escaped the destruction that other Ukrainian cities suffered in the Second World War, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and was declared by the Ukrainian government a state historic architectural sanctuary. That, though, is no shield against bombardment. Of an even more exuberant Baroque, the interior of the Church of Saints Peter and Paul in Lviv is a mass of golden starbursts and coloured marble. It was built for the Catholic Jesuit religious congregation and continued as a Catholic church as the garrison church of the Austrian army. Then in 1946, the Soviets closed it down and turned it into a book depository. It reopened as a church in 2011 in the care of the Greek Rite Catholic Church, with restoration continuing. In March, the mannered life-size figures of saints around its high altar were tied up in padded wrappings against bomb blasts, looking like some sort of modern art installation. The church saw a succession of military funerals. Then, on the 18th of March, cruise missiles hit an aircraft repair facility next to Lviv Airport. It was too close for comfort. Since then, more explosions have struck the city. While Russia threatens, no cultural treasures in Ukraine are safe. A glorious sight in Kiev is the Monastery of St. Michael of the Golden Domes. Pale blue walls, domes glinting above the Dnieper. It's half a mile from the president's office. It's been there since the 11th century, pillaged by Mongol invaders, rebuilt and adorned. Then, in 1934, a Soviet kangaroo court of official historians of the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences 
judged that it did not merit preservation. A lovely apse-shaped 12th century Byzantine mosaic on the theme of the Eucharist was transferred from it before demolition to a second floor space at the nearby Cathedral of Sancta Sophia. A mosaic from the same period of the martyr and warrior Saint Demetrius found its way to the Trechikov Museum in Moscow. The shell of the monastery was dynamited in 1936. In 1997, the rebuilding of the monastery began. It is now the headquarters of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which looks not to the Patriarch of Moscow, but to the ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople. Some of the artistic fittings saved from the old monastery have been returned. But today, what is at peril is not just churches and artworks. In Chernaiv, in the north of the country, in the early days of the war, the archives of the SBU, the Ukrainian Security Service, were destroyed by bombardment. They contained records of the Soviet oppression of Ukraine in the 1930s and of Nazi crimes in the Second World War. They are lost forever. The destruction of churches blasts away the beauty of holiness, the ritual expression of a civilization. The destruction of records annihilates records of the truth. That was Christopher House. Next, it's Richard Florida. For some, it was the taped-off park benches or the sight of police officers handing out fixed penalty notices to sunbathers. For others, it was the sheer number of deaths being reported in the inner boroughs. London in spring of 2020 was definitely not the place to be. As with other world cities, it faced what seemed to be an existential crisis. The streets drained of people, and those who could flee fled to second homes in the country. The veracity with which COVID-19 spread sparked a fear of living at high densities. Pundits across the Atlantic quickly proclaimed the death of cities. The belief was that remote work had freed people from the constraint of living close to the office. They would now opt for quieter lives in smaller towns and suburbs. The US satirical magazine, The Onion, caught the mood. It depicted a depopulated Manhattan, suddenly colonized by hordes of northern white rhino. Yet two years later, cities are back, faster than many thought possible, few more so than London. The Pret Index, a proxy for London foot traffic, measured based on transactions at the sandwiched fast food chain across the city, has even surpassed its pre-COVID baseline in the city's West End. Restaurant reservations on open table are at nearly 90% of pre-pandemic levels. In January, London's house prices grew at their fastest rate since 2016, and rents are back to where they were before COVID. Estate agents report large numbers of clients who fled London. They're now seeking to return. Why did anyone think it would be any different? Before the pandemic, London had a claim to be the most desirable city on earth. Judging by the sheer numbers of people from all over the world who were coming there to live. Why and how should COVID-19 destroy that 
when more virulent plagues had failed to kill off the capital or other great global cities in the past. Look, in 1665, some 100,000 Londoners died from the plague. A year later, the Great Fire destroyed 87 churches, most of the city's civic buildings, and 13,000 houses. Yet the city began to rebuild and reconstruct almost immediately, and its new grander stone-built streets became an inspiration for the later rebuilding of Paris. London rebuilt again after the devastation of the Blitz, something my own father witnessed in his service during World War II, and it recovered from the ravages of deindustrialization in the 70s and 80s, something I witnessed as a young boy and a student. And London rebounded despite the predictions of its eclipse as a global financial center after the 2008 economic crash, something I wrote about in the Atlantic Magazine at the time. When many others predicted demise, I predicted a rebirth. The same is true of all great cities. At some point, they have survived the cataclysmic event. Venice, Florence, and Rome suffered outbreaks of plagues during the Middle Ages, which killed as much as half of their population. Yet young people flocked back to those cities to take advantage of the higher wages and greater employment opportunities they offered. Tokyo was devastated by an earthquake in 1923 and by incendiary bombs in World War II. In 1945, which killed as many of 100,000 people in one night, both times the city was back on its feet within a decade. Plagues, pestilent, natural disasters, economic crises don't kill off great cities. They are most resilient and adaptive of creations. COVID, though, has changed one thing about London. Office occupancy in the business districts of the city remained less than one half of what they were before the pandemic. With remote work expected to take up at least one in five working days overall, and perhaps as many as two in five working days for business professionals once the pandemic is over, the commercial heartbeat of the city is going to feel very different. But remember, a city is not reducible to its offices, and offices are only a recent feature of cities. Great cities are adaptive. They remake and reuse their buildings and their built environments as circumstances and economic conditions change. When deindustrialization set in several decades ago, and those factories moved out of London and other great cities to the suburbs or overseas to Asia, the buildings that had once been factories or warehouses and storage facilities became artist lofts and galleries. Later, they became luxury residences, and more recently, they've become the favored offices for high-tech companies. These once forlorn industrial districts were remade as hubs of the growing knowledge, technology, and creative economy. Look, the packing and stacking of workers in vertical office towers is the last vestige of the old industrial age. People commuting from far and wide to go to work in their cubicle farm and have their time tracked by their managers. But it doesn't reflect the realities of the kind of knowledge work or creative work or innovative work being done today, nor the purpose of a modern city, which is not simply a container for working or living, but a vehicle for connecting people and building social and community capital. In place of a monoculture of offices with empty desks in the evening, we're likely to see London, the city, and other districts reborn as more balanced places with more people living and socializing. I saw this transformation firsthand last summer when I visited New York City as it began to reopen. 
The Midtown office towers were abandoned. They were darkened. But once 4.30 or 4.45 came around, I saw queues of knowledge workers in professional business attire. They'd come in from the suburbs and other parts of the metropolitan areas, some from the city itself. The same folks who were not in their offices by day were lining up in front of restaurants and cafes and bars. They'd come to Midtown to socialize and reconnect with their peers. You see, we often talk about cities as places to live, work, and play, but they're more than that. They're places to live, work, and play and connect. The growth of urban economies is driven more by connecting people to one another, by this connectivity function, than just by being containers for office work to be done. This is the very essence of a city. The city's connectivity, the connections and collaborations it enables, those are the things, those are the characteristics that spur new ideas, new businesses, new creativity, and whole new industries that ultimately lead to improved productivity, greater wealth, and better living standards. More than 50 years ago in 1958, the great urbanist Jane Jacobs, in her seminal essay, simply titled, Downtown is for People. Downtown is for people. It's a vehicle not just for work, but for connecting and collaborating. The pandemic accelerated changes already underway in cities, even before COVID. These urban office districts were adding residences and people, hotels, restaurants, nightlife, and fitness facilities. After 9-11, I was involved in developing the planning for New York City's financial district, and it was remade as a live-work area with many more residences and amenities. It became a place to live as well as to work, and is thriving. The same has been happening in London's business centers, Canary Wharf in the city. And those business centers have actually been expanding into adjacent, more mixed-use communities, like King's Cross, Shoreditch, and London Bridge for some time now. And one of the things that gave London its great resilience in this pandemic is that it's a city of villages, a community where neighborhoods could flourish. As workers began to work and live from home, and began to spend more time in those villages where they live. But today, the city itself, London, New York, and other great cities across Europe, North America, and Asia, are themselves transforming into an extended version of the office. The city and the neighborhood themselves are the new office, as more and more work takes place in cafes and bars and hotel lobbies. London has been at the forefront of this shift, it has been incubating new kinds of co-working and collaboration and co-creating spaces. The Soho House created its Soho Works, but there are all sorts of bespoke spaces, like Second Home and others, that are springing up in neighborhoods and communities all across the city. And it's not a new role for London. The London Stock Exchange began in Jonathan's Coffee House. In 1698, Lloyd's of London began in Lloyd's Coffee House on Lombard Street about the same time. So even if workers do not come to the office five days a week, they'll still come to the city and still come to its communities and its neighborhoods and its business districts to meet, to share ideas and do business. Our old office districts will be remade and they'll become centers for not just working, but connection and collaboration. And that's why London and other great cities will survive and thrive. All roads lead to them. That was Richard Florida. And finally, 
Olivia Potts. Notes on crisp sandwiches. A crisp sandwich is a private and personal endeavour. In my experience, and I have considerable experience in this particular area, it is usually eaten alone in the kitchen, often over the sink. It is deliberately unsophisticated, the ultimate fast food. Simple, salty, satisfying. It is a snack that speaks of the person you are, rather than the person you want to be. I firmly believe that no food should be a guilty pleasure, but I'll concede that crisps sandwiched between two heavily buttered slices of bread does not scream nutritional balance. Despite this, or perhaps because of it, a recent poll, admittedly commissioned by walkers who probably have some potato skin in the game, found that the average UK adult eats 35 crisp sandwiches a year, implying a collective total of over 2 billion, which makes me oddly proud of my country. Purists will tell you that a crisp sandwich should contain only crisps. But for many, crisps are a general-purpose ingredient, deployed frequently and liberally to give other sandwiches – cheese and pickle, ham and mustard, chicken salad – crunch. Structural integrity is an important consideration. The bread must be sufficiently robust to contain the crisps once squished and stand up to the vigorous application of a butter knife but it can't be chewy or you'll lose your crisps the moment you bite into it. Posh bread, ciabatta, sourdough and so on, is a non-starter. Fancy crisps don't work either. They are too thick, too crunchy, too much like hard work. Thick, white-sliced bread is the only acceptable choice with classic fried potato crisps. This is no place for a corn snack, thank you very much. A crisp sandwich defies mass production, largely because it must be made to order lest the crisps end up soggy. When in 2010 Asda attempted the impossible, a prepackaged crisp sandwich, the bread and crisps came separately for self-assembly. It was a prudent decision, but the concept never caught on. Maybe they were just ahead of their time. 2015 to 16 was the golden age of crisp sandwiches. The world's first dedicated crisp sandwich cafe, Simply Crispy, opened in Belfast, offering some 35 varieties which sold out within two hours. This was swiftly followed by a Dublin-based pop-up run by cult Irish crisp manufacturers Tato and by Mr Crisp in Keighley, West Yorkshire. On the other side of the pond, Late Late Bar, an Irish pub in the Lower East Side of New York, introduced a chive brioche roll stuffed with Tato cheese and onion crisps, Ballymolay stout relish and ketchup pickles and cheddar cheese mayo. In the same year, Irish airline Aer Lingus began offering a crisp sandwich on their in-flight menu. Like Asda's, these were make-your-own affairs. Passengers were presented with two slices of white bread, a pat of Irish butter and a packet of Tato cheese and onion crisps. Despite huge popularity, the option was only available for a brief, blissful six months before being discontinued. The crisp sandwich has famous fans in the food world. Hugh Fernley Whittingstall has professed his love for them, as have Nadia Hussein, buttered white bread, Marmite crisps and salad cream, and Jack Monroe. The late, great Amy Winehouse topped hers with sliced banana, each to their own. That was Olivia Potts. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. 
Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week. <laughs>